This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon. This week, I'm chatting with Susanna Kaiser about better serverless microservices using domain-driven design. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 42. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Susanna Kaiser. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you are an independent tech consultant. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what you've been up to lately? Mm -hmm. So as an independent consultant, I'm helping organizations within the broad spectrum of software architecture and design including development uh, to software delivery, uh, delivery, or in other words, or in shorter terms, helping organization um, building and shipping the digital products. So, And I was also um, previously working as a startup CTO, and I have a background in software development and software architecture of more than 17 years. And I also regularly present at international tech conferences as a speaker. Well, speaking of international tech conferences, I saw one of your talks at Serverless Days Belfast before we've shut down all conferences, um, you know, that, so no one can get together in person anymore. And, uh, and you did a talk about domain-driven design and how that applies to serverless and serverless microservices. So I'd love to talk to you about that today because I think that is one of those things where software developers, I don't want to say all software developers, but a lot of software developers are just really bad at software design, right? And not just design of architecture and things like that, which are kind of in our wheelhouse, but more from the business side of things and understanding what the business needs are, um, understanding what the technical needs are, and then sort of where that comes together in the middle and what people should actually be building to solve those customer needs. So I think that is sort of domain-driven design in a nutshell, but maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about what what domain-driven design actually is. Uh, yeah, so domain-driven design is software, yeah, philosophy or methodology created by Eric Evans. And uh, it's about to capture the business domain as closely as possible into, this, into your software. And it comes with a lot of strategic and tactical design patterns and practices that I am uh, happy to share with you um, uh, in a moment. Um, but it's also like, I would like to mention also from the very beginning, it's not applicable everywhere. So um, you should focus on your core domain. I will explain it in a minute, hopefully, too, um, where it makes sense to um, that focusing on, on complex business logic and helps you with um, um, solving problems uh, that have um, uh, complex business logic behind. Yeah, and so you had mentioned in your, in your talk um, the cost of poor software quality. Uh, and the yes. number you gave here was, um, I want to say it's $2,840 yes, exactly. billion uh, dollars yeah. a year uh, in, in poor software quality. So what, what, are some of these, what are some of these indicators of poor software quality? So there are, not, there are no simple measures for bad or good software quality, but there are several metrics that can be used as indicators. For example, uh, an increasing curve of defect trend over the time is an indicator of poor quality software or low test coverage, assuming that there is good test quality or cyclomatic complexity 
or a large death of inheritance and a high degree of class coupling could also be indicators. And also like the amount of effort it takes to understand a piece of code or um, badly engineered software resulting, for example, from immature, undisciplined practices and using uh, less qualified software engineers. Or also in one thing is also really um, uh, com um, important to mention is the lack of domain knowledge and also poor communication and coordination issues in teams, specifically when the teams are growing. Yeah, so that lack of domain knowledge. So I think that sort of gets to the crux of it, right? Because like I said in the beginning, you know, we think we know how to solve a problem um, and we know how to solve it technically. But what we're really trying to do is solve a problem that's very specific to a group of customers, whether that, you know, whatever that group of customers might be. And, and those different models could be, you know, your, your, uh, your inventory system, right? And your inventory teams think of... Um, uh, they think of inventory in a certain way. And then you need software engineers to be able to build a system that makes sense for them, that uses the same language, that uses the same sort of uh, communication patterns or styles or things like that. So so what what are those, you know, so what goes into building good software then? Like what are the, the main components of building good software? So your domain-driven design comes with a core statement that in order to build better software, we have to align its software design uh, with the business domain, with the business needs and the business strategy. And um, so domain-driven design helps you with aligning your um, software design with this business domain and needs and the strategy. And it's very crucial um, for, for building um, your, your software solution because otherwise you are building something that for example, are not matching the requirements of your users. Instead, you have to collaborate with um, intensively with your domain experts to gain domain knowledge and to understand the business, uh, the problem first before you're solving it. And we are tending to um, to ju to jump directly into uh, uh, solving a problem technically. And yeah, uh, yeah, we can just let's deployed on a Kubernetes cluster, but we have not understood the problem um, problem first. And that's really right. crucial to, to build better software. Well, you mentioned the word strategy, which is one of those things where I don't think a lot of people know what that exactly means. Like, what is what is the strategy? And, um, and you had talked a lot about Wardley maps and sort of understanding <laughs> this landscape um, and being able to use that to sort of plan your strategy. And, and we can get into some of that more. But but um, but can you explain Wardley Maps? We've talked about it before, but but just sort of in the context of domain-driven design, how does that help you? Yeah, I really like to combine domain-driven design with Wardley Maps because um, at first, like when you start the journey to domain-driven design, it's really overwhelming. So it was, for me, very overwhelming because it comes with a lot of new terms and it requires some time to grasp and understand it. And uh, since it's not applicable everywhere, um, Wadley Maps helps you to visualize the journey to domain-driven design. Um, so Wadley Maps uh, has been created by Simon Wadley, a researcher from the UK. And um, a Wadley Map is a representation of the landscape the business is operating in. And it's, it's really simple. So it consists of a y-axis for the value chain and an x-axis for the evolution stages. And uh, Wadley Map visualizes the evolution of a value chain. So the first question is, so what is a value chain? So behind every user need, there is a value chain and it starts off with the questions like, who are your users? 
who are going to approach you to get the problem solved and what kind of user needs do they do these users have like what kind of problems they would like to get solved by you and what are the components and activities that are necessary to fulfill these user needs directly or indirectly by facilitating other activities so and you have on the on the y axis at the top we have those components and activities that are visible to your users so where your users are touching the system and at the bottom of the y-axis, we um, it becomes more and more invisible to the users. And um, why you have to identify uh, every component activity that is um, uh, that your value chain is composed of, you take this um, components and activities and plot it along an evolution axis, the x-axis um, going from left to right. And at the left of the x-axis, we have genesis with brand new things that have never existed before, then custom build then product and rental such as off-the-shelf products or open source software and then on the very right like commodity and utilities and the movement of a component or activity along the x-axis is determined by its stage of evolution so it comes also with um what maps comes also with with patterns and principles too and for example one of the pattern is that the map is never steady but very dynamic so every mm -hmm. everything evolves from from left to right through the forces of supply and demand competition and as the components evolve from left to right their characteristics change for example from the uncharted uh, domain from from the left the undefined market it's uncertain unpredictable constantly changing and becoming more and more industrialized going to the right where we where we enter the the domain or the market of the of known mature widespread commonly understood market itself and also um, one other pattern is like that efficiency enables innovation so that means that the industrialization of one component um, enables the um, for example new features of existing products to appear or the evolution of other components or that new components can emerge enabling new user needs and so um, the evolution of one component and its efficient provision enables the innovation of others but also that it comes with principles um, for example that you should use appropriate methods per evolution state so what components should be built in-house um, these are the components that are residing in the genesis and the custom build evolution stage or where to use uh, buy off-the-shelf products and open source software so that mm -hmm. are the components and activities that are residing in the product and rental evolution stage and where to outsource to utility uh, suppliers and these are the components and activities that are located in the commodity and utility evolution stage so yeah. and it's really um important and in order to know like um uh to use the appropriate methods because it's also like we don't want to we would like to avoid to custom build commodities because uh, we would like to come to, to custom build those components and activities that belong to our core domain and that's why i can make them the link to to domain driven design later on but it's also important to know um, your users and uh, focus on your user needs and right. because the user needs that are the subject area of what we build software for right they are the reason that they are the why of our business domain and um, but before we develop a solution that solves the user needs we need to understand the problem domain first and that's why i would like to bring in domain-driven design 
where but, the but before over- we before we get to that though, because I don't want to get yeah. too far ahead, because I think that what you just said, um, you know, again, like I said, we've talked about Wardley maps quite a bit before, and this idea of moving from you know this custom built stuff to all the way up to where you just outsource it and it's electricity, right? It's a complete utility. Um, you know, this is really where I think serverless comes in um, with how we're planning on on building some of these uh, these products because. It always used to be, you know, again, you write some custom software that did something. Like right now, it would be crazy for someone to write their own database software unless, you know, for their own company, unless they were building a new product. But if you're just, if you need a database, you're not going to say, I'm just going to write my own database software. Like that's done. Like there is a lot of solutions out there um, and you're going to pick something off the shelf and you're going to run that. Um, And then we, it even has gotten to this point now with a lot of the tools that AWS has is to say, it would be crazy for you to install your own MySQL cluster, for example, on on EC2 instances or on VM somewhere. That would just be crazy because you have RDS and that whole process is not only commoditized in terms of the the software that's running, but but then almost you you know sort of a utility at this point by running the actual RDS cluster in the background and managing all the updates and all that kind of stuff for you, um, and that's sort of that great when you had mentioned this, you said you know this idea of building versus buying versus outsourcing. This is the the thing where there are so many pieces of the infrastructure now that have become commoditized in a sense, you know, whether that's SQS or it's um, even compute with Lambda or Fargate or things like that, um, that, that now really I think we're at a time where as technologists, we can focus on building just the things our customer needs and let all that heavy lifting go up to the cloud provider. Yeah, exactly. So it shifts the focus back on um, the things that are really important to our business and to our customers, right? So instead of handling all these infrastructure and, and operational complexities uh, without serverless, for example, uh, and that, that, for example, if we have if we're a small team and handle all these infrastructure and operational complexities all by ourselves, um, then uh, we don't have time to to solve our users' problems and to to focus on our core domain and and provide. Uh, yeah, and, and, and focus on our competitive advantage. Instead, our focus is blurred away and handling all these uh, these infrastructure and operational complexities. And with serverless, we have the uh, possibility to shift our focus back, solving our users' problems first, and uh, have it getting getting as you mentioned the the uh, undifferentiating heavy lifting. Then um, outsource this to to uh, cloud providers using serverless. Technologies, right. for example. Right. So I interrupted you. You were getting into uh, more about domain-driven design. Exactly. So one of the the principles that's um, of, of a Wardley map is that we now our users and focus on our user needs, and uh, because that's the why of our business domain, right? And um, but before we develop a solution, because I can talk of myself. I, I tend to jump in right into the technical solution without understanding the problem first. Right. I and, think we all, uh, a lot but, of us do that, yes. <laughs> yes exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like first uh, trying to wire something together and then, oh, no, it's not really <laughs> matching the requirements that our right. users are looking for. And so so we need to, to um, uh, um, understand the problem domain first. And that's where I would like to bring in domain-driven design, where the collaboration between the domain experts and development teams is an essential part to obtain domain knowledge and which is described in uh, in terms of the shared language the ubiquitous language and 
and the domain knowledge is really free of, of any technical uh, terms itself. It's just the shared language between uh, domain experts and the development team. And the domain knowledge is very crucial because, as mentioned earlier, uh, the lack of such can have a huge impact on costs caused by poor quality software. Right. So, yeah, so that's oh, so the reason why. So, so the, yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say that the, um, uh, you know, that that's one of those things you keep talking about, these sort of two sides, right? You've got this, this the, the domain-driven model or the, the uh, domain expertise, and then you have the technical expertise. Um, and so in terms of, of taking an approach to building a product, right, there's that, uh, and this is something you mentioned in your in your talk, where there's sort of those two sides of it, right? There's the strategic design side, and then there's the tactical design side. So maybe yes. we could get into those a little bit. Um, exactly. And that's also why I, um, where I would love to combine it with, with Wadley Maps, domain-driven design combine it with Wadley Maps, because uh, so domain-driven design comes with patterns and practical practices, and uh, those can be categorized into strategic design and tactical design patterns and practices. So, and when we enter the field of strategic and tactical design, I would like to combine it with Wadley Map and use the y-axis to visualize the position and the value chain going from top the strategic design to further down the tactical design patterns. And as I mentioned before, we tend to, to jump directly into the tactical at the bottom first before we, we have covered strategic design. And I would like to avoid it by putting Wardley maps in place, starting from top to down, starting with the strategic design first. And um, so we start at the strategic design uh, in, within the po problem space first, and that's where we analyze the problem domain and discover subdomain and the subdomains. And the problem domain or, or business domain is a business overall activities. For example, uh, the services a business is providing to its customers. And a problem domain is composed of subdomains. The subdomains represent a set of interrelated use cases or business processes where um, and we are distilling this problem domain and partitioning into smaller subdomains and by partitioning it, the problem domain into smaller subdomains we are on the one hand reducing complexities um, but on the other side we also have to consider that not all subdomains are equal and some subdomains are more important and more valuable to the business domain than others so we have three different kinds of subdomains. So we have the cause, the supporting, and the generic subdomain. And um, the core subdomain, that's, that's the essential part of our problem domain, providing the competitive advantage. That are those parts um, of the system that makes it uh, a success and uh, should be hard for competitors to, to copy or imitate. So they're supposed to be quite complex. They're supposed to, be, to have a complex business logic. And they tend to change often. So, and um, that's the, the core domain. That's where we have to um, strategically invest most and innovate on. And that's the subdomain we need to build in-house. And, um, and that's the, the core domain that's supposed to go into the genesis and custom build evolution stage of a Wadley map. Mm -hmm. So, and then the other subdomain uh, type that we have is a supporting subdomain. So that helps to um, support the core subdomain and, but does, does not provide any competitive advantage. So they are uh, quite simple, but do not change very often. And, uh, and if possible, you should look out for buying off the shelf uh, uh, products or open source software 
And if that's not possible, um, um, for what reason ever, sh you should not, you're supposed not to invest heavily in these systems. They should be quite simple. But um, look, so these are the, the supporting subdomain that should go into the uh, product and rental evolution stage of a Wardley map. Then the generic subdomain, that's um, is, are subdomains that many large businesses have, for example, um, authentication or payment handling or something like that. So they are on core um, usually and, um, and provide no competitive advantage, but the business businesses cannot work without them. So you cannot work without authentication in the most cases. Um, but they are generally complex, but they are already solved by someone else. So um, the, um, the generic subdomain is supposed to uh, go into the um, commodity and supplier evolution stage of a Wadley map. So we should we should focus on buying um, uh, to open to, to outsource it to use utility supplier, or if that's not possible, um, at least have it then. For example, they can be combined, like going into the product and rental or commodity and utility um, evolution stage. So either buy off the shelf products or use open source software or outsource to commodity suppliers. So that's how I would like to um, uh, to to handle. Uh, the uh, strategic design uh, combined with with Wadley maps, and um, further down, when we go further down, we enter then the tactical design patterns that I will probably talk later about it. Like that supports making top level, uh, low level, sorry, design decisions to sure. architect and implement a solution. And uh, but first, we should go when we go from top to down. We should start with the strategic design first. And then uh, go further downwind into the tactical design later. Maybe you, you are not; it's not necessary to to, um, to use the tactical design, but at least we have to understand the problem domain first yep. using the uh, strategic design. So after we have analyzed the problem domain and distilled uh, the problem domain into subdomains, and also discovered our core domain where we strategically uh, we have to strategically invest most. Um, we can go further down and switch to the solution space of strategic design. And that's where we come to the domain model and later on to the bounded context. So the domain model is at the center of domain-driven design. And within each subdomain, a domain model can be created representing the domain logic and the business rule that are relevant to that area of the system. And the domain model comes in different shapes. For example, it, it's in the, in the beginning, it's formed as an analysis model during the collaboration between the domain experts and the development teams. Uh, for example, it could be a UML diagram or product sketches. And later on, it can result in a code model uh, when we come to the tactical design. So, and the domain model is described in terms of ubiquitous language and is free of any technical complexities. And but a model cannot a domain model cannot exist without a boundary, and that's where we come to the bounded context. So, so before are, sorry, before we get into that though, because this is one of the things that I, I think some people get hung up on. Um, it's this idea of ubiquitous language. So uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but um, but it, I think we should be clear on what exactly we mean by that, because I think for a developer, if you say um, this is a customer or this is an order, like that seems pretty straightforward, but to a domain expert, 
something that is, say, you know, a particular status of a of something like a a, a pro, an order that is um, that is pending, that may mean something completely different to a domain expert than it does to a developer. Like a developer says, "Oh, the order is pending," that means I just flag it with a pending status. But there could be a whole bunch of other stuff that's involved around what may seem like a very very simple term. Can you can you expand more on that ubiquitous language thing? Because I think that's really important. Yeah, so the um, it's yeah, so it's it's also like to 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 build in the common understanding, the shared understanding of the domain it's itself, and, and through the collaboration, uh, intensive co collaboration between the domain experts and development teams, and during that collaboration, uh, is, so this misunderstanding has to be uh, to, to to be cleared out. Like for example, what what do we understand um, for like what is the pending status like in in terms of it's not only a flag in a database. It also comes with business rules. For example, right. uh, if an order is pending, then it means, for example, we cannot delete it or something like that. So, so there are some invariants that we have to check when, and um, that are applicable to to um, to specific uh, um, yeah to the to its domain model. And um, so that means that um, it it, it it comes with a lot of new uh, with, with business rules or in, in variants that's what they call it in, in domain driven design and we have to make it sure that we we keep the domain model consistent and to to protect its integrity uh, within this bounded context and so that means that uh, um, not only a flag but also it comes with new yeah with a lot of rules and environment invariants that we have to check all right, I interrupted you. You were talking about bounded contexts. Yes. So, um, as mentioned, that um, a domain model cannot exist without a boundary. Then that's uh, where we come to bounded context. And a bounded context um, provides different types of boundaries for domain models. So it forms, it could form a consistency boundary around the domain model and protects its integrity. And um, it could also, could also form a linguistic and semantic boundary so that the language's terms um, are only consistent inside uh, of its bounded context. So, for example, pending in one bounded context could be a different, uh, uh, could, could, could have a different meaning than another bounded context, for example. And it also serves as a ownership boundary. So, for example, bounded context uh, could be implemented and evolved and maintained by one team only. And a single team can, on the other hand, can also own multiple bounded contexts. But it's really, really irrelevant that not multiple teams are working on the same bounded context. Because this enables autonomous teams working at their bounded context independently at their own pace and with minimal impact across other teams. Yeah. And it also serves as a physical boundary and uh, can be implement, implemented as a separate solution and can be deployed independently as separate artifacts and also enables separate data storage stores, which are not accessible by other bounded contexts. And uh, for example, also the source code code of each bounded context can be maintained in separate Git repositories with their own CI CD pipeline. So, um, and also, each bounded context can have separate architecture patterns applied, and that's where we enter the tactical design area. Right. And before we get to that, though, I just want to, you know, because I think we hear this term bounded contexts uh, quite a bit when we're talking about microservices. And this is yeah. exactly what we're talking about here. Um, but that is certainly one of those things where um, when people move to microservices, it's always how 
do I, what is a bounded context? What does that mean? What, why should I create a billing service? Should I create a, an inventory service? Should I create an alerting service? You know, wh- where are the, where are the separations there? This is exactly what you want to follow, right? You want to think about all of these different ideas. You know, you want to talk about the, the language barrier. Like if you have um, two domains that are trying to work with one another, you don't put those into the same bounded context because the language could be different. The, um, the infrastructure could be different, all, all kinds of things like that. The physical boundary, the ownership boundary, these are all great things. So if you're, so if you're thinking about building microservices, start paying attention to everything that uh, Susanna is saying, saying right now because um, this is super important. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no problem at all. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. If you're running modern applications in the cloud like serverless and microservices, Epsigon can add distributed tracing and payload visibility to all of your workloads. It lets you discover, monitor, and alert on issues. Plus, you can search across every trace, payload, and log so that you can troubleshoot and solve the most complex issues in seconds all through a single, easy-to-use web-based interface. It's also incredibly simple and fast to set up. There are no agents to install, no manual coding, no tagging, and no training required. It literally takes about three minutes to get this up and running. Then Epsigon will discover and instrument all of your application stacks with no coding changes. Now, I've known Nitsen, their CEO, and Ron, their CTO, for quite some time now, both of whom have actually been guests on this podcast, and they both bring an incredible amount of expertise to the observability space. The work that they and the team at Epsigon have done is amazing, and they've built a really, really solid product. So if you're looking for an observability tool that you can run on any of your production workloads, containers, Lambda, Kubernetes, Fargate, or even VMs, definitely check them out at epsagon.com. That's E-P-S-A-G-O-N.com. Um, so yeah, and each bounded context can have um, separate architecture patterns applied. Um, that, that's, that's what I was mentioning, that we enter now the, the te- tactical uh, design patterns and practices. And um, for example, um, one bounded context can go with the layered architecture where you split your source code into layers such as presentation, business logic, and persistence layer, or as um, hexagonal architecture, a specific form of, of, of the layered architecture. Uh, I come to this in a minute. Or for example, or CQRS, command query responsible segregation, where you split your source code into command models and uh, read models um, for updating your, your, the state of your domain model or reading the state of your domain model. So, um, and I would like to highlight the hexagonal architecture a little bit. Um, I know you, that you have already uh, covered this in a previous uh, podcast already, but it's um, specifically also combined with serverless when you transform the your value chain going from open source uh, to, to, for example, to, to serverless. It's mm-hmm. really... It's and, and combined with domain-driven design, hexagonal architecture, it's really helpful because it aims for separation of concerns. It's also called port, called ports and adapters. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it creates a loosely coupled software components that can be easily connected to their software environment and by using ports and adapters. And um, so, and your your uh, your software components are categorized. In, into an outer and inner part where your ports and adapters are used to connect from the outside to the inside and from the inner part to the outside and its core, the inner part, there is the business logic. 
And hexagonal architecture makes your components exchangeable. And um, so no matter what kind of infrastructure you are using at the outside, the business logic at the inside might, might, uh, can remain the same and makes your business logic adaptable for future evolution. So, for example, when you started um, uh, with your core domain um, using open source software like MongoDB and uh, using Keycloak for authentication and something like that. So, um, uh, and you are now shifting it to uh, to AWS using DynamoDB and using um, serverless Lambda functions to to provide an, an backend API. Um, your domain-driven design, your your domain model remains the same. So it's 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 um, representing your business logic, including your in your rules, uh, including your rules. But the infrastructure can be exchanged and uh, without touching the inner part of your of your system. Yeah, so I mean, ports and adapters and the hexagonal architecture, like we did talk about that before, but I, this is a super important, uh, super important way to build software, especially with serverless. Um, I started doing this actually, actually uh, after I talked to Slobodan Stoyanovich. Um, he, he was a big fan of it, and I said, I'll give it a try, because um, I would often build in a lot of logic right into Lambda functions, um, or you, know, you, you have some of those calls that aren't quite separated out, and I've always been a big fan of building like data access layers, right? So you always build some simple inter interface to um, to your database so that you don't have to always be writing SQL queries or queries against DynamoDB or something like that. But this is great because it does help you evolve, right? Like as you said, like if you are using MongoDB and then you decide, hey, I want to go to DynamoDB, um, you know, forget about moving data, which is a different problem. But in terms of your software and the architecture that you build, or I should say the, the models that you build, those can stay the same, and then you just have to again sort of swap out that uh, that adapter um, and have it access you know X database rather than than Y database. So um, so yeah. So then how how do you implement um, some of these business patterns themselves? Yeah. So um... or I should say, how do you how do you implement some of these business logic patterns? So it, exactly. So they so each bounded context. Um... Can uh, can be implemented by different business logic implementation patterns. So, for example, for our core domain, um, there it's uh, it could be implemented as a domain model um, related to our domain-driven design with its building blocks of aggregates, entities, value objects, and and so on. And so, the domain model is an object model of the domain which incorporates both behavior and data and um, but it should not be applied to everywhere. So it copes, copes very well with cases of complex business logic and uh, complex business rules. And it's very well suited, as I mentioned, for implementing the core subdomain, which goes into Wartley Maps, into the uh, Genesis and custom built uh, evolution stage. And um, so the domain model should be free of technological and infrastructure complexities. And um, I come. Uh, a bit later to the to the building blocks of the domain model, um, but I would also like to highlight other business logic implementation patterns um, that are possible. So there are a lot of uh, I just want to highlight one, two others, like the active record, for example. Mm -hmm. This uh, active records represent a row in a um, in a database table or view, and they encapsulate uh, the database access and also adds domain logic to the data, and it's so it carries. Um, uh, the, the data and the behavior and the access to, to the database itself. And it's so the active record supports cases where 
business logic is quite simple but operates a more complex data structure. And it's, it's very usable uh, for, for the supporting subdomain, domain-driven design. So, yeah, um, that's what I was, I was just going to say, is that a lot of, that's one of the things that I think you mentioned earlier was you don't use domain models or core models for everything, right? Like you, that's the whole no. point of the, the build versus buy versus outsource type thing is that you want to make sure that when, there are, when there's something simple that needs to be done, like you know, simple store database record and there's not a lot of complexity to that, that using something like active record is a better choice than trying to, because you don't want to reinvent the wheel, essentially. Exactly. And um, uh, and you also, so if you if you try to, to apply domain-driven design to cases with less complex business logic, then you're over-engineering it. Right. And, um, and so domain-driven design is really um, very well suited for, for complex business logic cases. And these are supposed to go, like, this is supposed to be your core domain, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is on the, in the uh, genesis and custom build evolution stage of a Wadley map. So there it's, it fits very well, but domain-driven designer would not recommend to, to use it for, for generic subdomain. So for example, they can use um, transaction scripts, for example, another business logic implementation pr- pattern where, um, uh, where you organize your business logic by procedure and where each procedure handles a single request from the presentation. So it works very well with small applications that does not implement any, any complex business logic. And they can just, yeah, for example, importers or authentication using Cognito or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, you don't have to apply domain driven design onto, onto, uh, into that generic subdomain case. So you mentioned the building blocks of domain models. So what are those? Yes. And uh, they could be kind of like overwhelming because there are a lot of building blocks. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess it's... So and if you start, like it could be the case that um, that you have the the impression, oh, this my first model does not look very nice. And that's okay. Because when you start <laughs> at the beginning... Uh, your first versions, it's, it's, it's kind of an iterative approach, right? Sure. Why you're collaborating with your domain experts, why you're gaining more, more knowledge, um, your domain model is evolving as well. And you, uh, and also like you can't do it right from the very beginning, but, um, no, that's at least my experience. <laughs> I don't want it to, to, to tell. No, I think uh, I think with any with anything, it's like designing a Dynamo DB table. You're going to get it wrong the first time, and you just got to keep you know working working through it till it. Uh, I mean, it's it's with all software. An iterative approach to anything is uh, is typically what we we do because we think we're better than we are, and we just make a decision, and then we realize, oh, that was a bad decision. You know, a couple of weeks later, exactly. so. <laughs> and you're always smarter after we have gained all the experiences, right? Exactly. Specifically exactly. with DynamoDB tables. <laughs> right, exactly. Why is it so expensive? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, uh, domain-driven design comes with um, building blocks, and I would like to highlight a few of them. So for example, we have, I guess, the simple, uh, most simple uh, building block is the value object. A value object is an immutable object which uh, can be identified by its value. And when you change this value, you um, you will replace the entire object instance. And um, for example, a common example that the people are bringing us, uh, like the address of a customer, mm-hmm. that could be a value object. But I also like to go even more fine grained. But I talk to that one later on. <laughs> or and the next building block is an entity. And an entity is um, can is identified by a unique ID, and it can change its state uh, uh, over time. 
So like, um, yeah, that's, that's something that comes, um, it's incorporated into an aggregate. So an aggregate itself is composed of, um, re represents a hierarchy of objects and it's composed of one or more entities and one or more value objects and where one entity is called the aggregate root. And an aggregate root is designated as the aggregate's public interface um, uh, that you can use, like when you, for example, when you use a domain model that is um, an aggregate, when you load it from the database, you are going through its aggregate root by its unique entity ID, load it into, uh, and also apply then the, uh, like renaming it or rescheduling or something like that that's apply applicable to the domain logic. That's usually then the uh, um, aggregate roots um, um, methods that you are using. Then you also have the repository that can save and retrieve entities or aggregates from the underlying storage um, mechanism. And you also have an application servers. Um, these are only, um, um, the, their purpose is to only orchestrate use cases and manage transactions. So they do not contain any business logic, but they are the gateway to the domain model, to the aggregates um, that are um, um, building your domain model. And uh, another thing is uh, also the domain event. Uh, this is a message that describes a significant event that has happened in, in your business domain, for example. So there are a lot of like building blocks and they are kind of like, oh, really, not really tangible at the very beginning. Um, <laughs> But the more you, you try to, um, to use them, for example, also like I, um, during a workshop, I was building um, a conference solution and I tried to, um, to, to, to compose my domain model of aggregates and the aggregates were composed of value objects and um, each of them is taking care of um, keeping the invariance of business rule um, um, uh, with its integrity so that you can make sure even though you might have a lot of classes and um, composed together with each other and it says yeah why do i need so, need so many classes because each of them is is ensuring that uh, that your aggregate composed of these components of these uh, value objects and entities you can make sure that they are um, uh, consistent and mm -hmm. they are valid at every at every time in your system because they take care of it they um, they take care whenever you compose it. At that time, they are valid. They have have, have um, uh, um, matched the validation uh, restrictions, for example. Well, I mean, even just object-oriented design. I mean, that that software pattern of you know creating a new object that has a very specific structure and and specific methods that can interact with it. Um, it's very similar, I think, in a sense to what. Um, you know, sort of what you're talking about with these individual bounded contexts, only a lot more complex, but, um, but that ability for you to, you know, create these things and make sure that when they're created and the things that they can do, um, that these are all very specifically prescribed, like, the, you know, it's very restrictive in terms of what these things can do so they can follow all those business rules. Yes, and we also have, so for example, when you have, when your domain model that is composed of it could be one aggregate, could be multiple aggregates, for example. Um, and they are having methods, for example, um, that are really um, matching, um, consistent with the, the terms of your, your, your ubiquitous language. You don't right. have 
um, uh, a domain model that consists just of setter and getters and changing um, uh, changing state. Instead, they have they have methods that are reflecting the shared language. For example, if you have um, I don't know. For example, you have a customer um, aggregate and um, you are the, the company name is changing. You will have a method that call, that's called rename and containing then the name as a, as a parameter. Or, for example, when the address has changed, you're not saying, okay, set address. Instead, you say relocate or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that it's really reflected to, to the um, domain language, right. uh, to the ubiquitous language. So when you talk to your uh, domain expert, you can, you, you have this, you, you share the same language so that you don't have to, to, to translate it, your technical uh, terms to, to the domain uh, experts terms. Instead, you you're using the same language. And this yeah. also allows you to, to get rid of a lot of misunderstandings. Well, and you had mentioned too, like that, that relocate, uh, like, so let's say I have a, 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 a function or a method that allows me to, to, to relocate a customer. It's not as simple as just saying, okay, change the address, right? Like there may be um, rules in place where you have to keep X number of pass address or you have to make sure you keep all addresses or you can only relocate a customer if you, um, you know, if the customer is active or if they've been active yeah. within a certain amount of time. Yeah. So all of those business rules, all of those things that tie together with that domain model, um, you know, all of that ties together with, with these ag or with these, you know, with these methods that you talked about. So I think that is, um, I, I think that's super important for people to think about it that way. It's not just update a record in the database. Exactly. It's also like uh, trying to, it's also matching the invariance of business logic, the business yeah. rules. Yeah, that's important. Um, all right, so if we want to, um, if we want to use domain-driven design, um, and you know, how how can we use it to help us build, say, serverless like backends, for example? So when I entered the field of serverless, I was um, with its fine-grained, short-lived function triggered by a variety of events, and I was kind of like overwhelmed in terms of um, if you design a system composed of countless functions. Um, that might be at the risk of losing sight of each function's purpose. Or it also bears the risk that we accidentally introduce a big ball of mud due to coupling functions together by accidents or accident or accessing resources that we should not access from our, from various uh, functions itself. And one approach to, um, um, could be to, to introduce domain driven design. Because domain-driven design allows you to organize uh, the serverless functions, the Lambda functions, for example, if you build a backend API. Mm -hmm. um, so it allows you to organize um, uh, your functions together so that you, um, as I mentioned, like um, uh, bounded cont context provides different forms of boundaries in terms of like uh, um, also physical boundaries, like that you, for example, can organize all your function that belongs to one bounded context, your modeler um, your, your module in, in terms of like your, your system um, and it allows you to organize your functions for example um, to in that they all go in one git repository for example yeah. and it also allows you to uh, organize your, your your lambda functions if you go uh, on uh, aws it allows you to organize them in terms of like what access rights access rights do i have for my um, uh, for the the DynamoDB table, for example, that I'm using. So only those functions that goes 
into one bounded context and, and are located in one Git repository, they are allowed to access the DynamoDB table that is, uh, is saving the state of our domain model, but not, or not other, uh, um, serverless functions that are, um, that are relevant or that are responsible for another bounded context, they are not allowed to access my DynamoDB table directly. Instead, right. um, they we have to figure out like what kind of integration patterns we we have between those these bounded contexts, like um, event driven, like for, for example, um, um, submitting an event or into an SNS topic, and our other bounded context, um, um, external bounded context, is subscribing to this topic and then. Uh, um, is reacting on this um, um, appropriately, but it's not accessing the uh, the, the the data storage components um, of uh, an external bounded context. So that allows us to to get in to get an overview um, which which serverless functions are solving uh, what bounded uh, what problem, what part of our problem, what bounded context, and um, they they. And they help us to organize um, which bounded, uh, which functions goes into one Git repository, and also help us to organize what access rights do we have, and um, uh, be, that we are not allowed to access resources that are in uh, where other bounded contexts are in charge of. Right, and that actually creates sort of that physical uh, boundary, right? I mean, in a sense where you can have well physical boundaries and ownership boundaries that we talked about earlier because you can have a team that goes and just works on one bounded context and a group of functions. And I think, we, I think we've been seeing that quite a bit. That's sort of been the approach um, when people are taking a microservices approach to uh, serverless that what they're doing is they're taking a single stack and they're putting all their related functions for that service in a single stack, um, you know, have a separate DynamoDB uh, table or uh, other, you know, whatever their their uh, data store of choice is, um, that they're sort of doing that. So I, I think that makes I think that makes a ton of sense. And and certainly the domain driven design approach to all of this, and really thinking about that ubiquitous language. I know I'm hung up on this, but that to me is hugely important because I think a lot of people I think a lot of people miss that. And I think you know, as you said, you know, sort of what's important for the customer is the most important thing. And I know a lot of technologists who say, all right, we just want to focus on what's good for the customer. But what we really want to do is figure out how to install Kubernetes, right? Like, you know, exactly. we want to figure out, we want to figure out how we can do this cool technological thing, whether or not, I mean, it eventually will have some benefit to our customer. Um, and that's the, uh, that, that's, I think, what slows down a lot of software. And I think what you said right from the beginning is that's why we have so much poor software. Um, so anyways, if people want to learn more about domain-driven design, um, I know there are some books out there, um, but you're working on a workshop for this, right? Yes. Yeah, so I have created a workshop that is still under development. And um, so I have created a workshop that is focusing on an example because I guess you can learn the best when you have an, a practical example, sure. it's also a simple example, but it's, for example, a conference solution um, where you can, uh, where we identify the bounded contexts that are um, necessary to, for example, manage a conference event, including starting a CFP, a call for papers, uh, evaluating the submissions and create a schedule and to um, submit a session proposal from the speaker and, and something like that. So, and, 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 uh, and this, I, I uh, was creating a, a workshop out of it in terms of like, okay, um, how to use one thing, like how to use Wadley Maps, how to identify 
what shall be core domain and combine it with domain-driven design and what goes into uh, to, to the other evolution stages and also evolving the value chain, going first from, okay, what happens when we uh, implement this solution um, using also the tactical design patterns after we have started with the strategic design, but um, how can we evolve the the, um, the value chain in terms of like using starting first within with an open source solution going on premise, and how does it evolve going then um, at the end to serverless um, uh, using a, providing a serverless and backend API with micro frontends, for example, and uh, and yeah, it's a kind of like multi-stage uh, uh, workshop where we um, try to yeah going also from the strategy, like how can we uh, outsource those components and what does it mean for our uh, software architecture and our software design and uh, what kind of impact does it have and then we at the end we figured out okay so the business logic remains the same but um, in the hexagonal architecture but the infrastructure components they are then replaced for example in one case we are using a REST API to con communicate with another bounded context and uh, for example in, in the serverless uh, example I'm using then um, uh, an SMS topic for asynchronous communication via events and still the core, the inner part remains the same and mm -hmm. I, tr I try to make it tangible for, for the audience, for the participants, how it looks like um, yeah, evolving your value chain. Awesome. Well, that's going to be a, a very, very good resource. Um, so thank you for uh, for putting that effort in. And, and thank you, uh, Susanna, for, for coming on the show and, and talking about this because I think this is a... Uh, this is something that isn't talked about a lot in a lot of development uh, on a lot of development teams, um, and it should be more because we would be building better software. And of course, you know, I have a, uh, I have, a, a, I'm quite fond of serverless, right? So, uh, you know, the idea of the things that you can do to reduce that that build um, or that sort of uh, uh, implement yourself type uh, type projects is uh, is something that serverless just you know, blows everything else out of the water, uh, at least in my opinion. So anyways, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to get um, in touch with you or find out more about your workshop and some of the other things you're working on, how do they do that? So I, uh, they can contact me uh, via Twitter, for example. So my Twitter handle is S-U-K-S-R. So I'm also my direct messages are open. And also, uh, I am having my own uh, website. Uh, it's net. And also, you can uh, reach me over LinkedIn as well. Awesome. I will get all of that into the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Susanna Kaiser for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 42. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.